Sholem Aleichem, welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Sarah Stein. Sarah Abriva Stein is author and editor of nine books. Her most recent book, Family Papers, A Sephardic Journey Through the 20th Century, explores the intertwined histories of a single family, Sephardic Jewry, and the dramatic ruptures that transformed southeastern Europe and the Judeo-Spanish diaspora. Sarah's books and articles have won numerous prizes, including two National Jewish Book Awards, the Sammy Rohr Prize for Jewish Literature, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Sarah is an alumna of the Yiddish Book Center's Summer Internship. It was an early version of what is now the Center's Steiner Summer Yiddish Program. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. So, um, first off, thanks for uh, another great book. Um, Thank you. Um, and I'm curious to ask, what drew you to write Family Papers? Well, I, I fell into this topic, as one sometimes does with uh, scholarly historical projects. Um, I was finishing another book, which was a translation of the first Ladino memoir we understand to have been written, a project I wrote with Aaron Rodrigue under the title of A Jewish Voice from Ottoman Salonika. Uh, that memoir was handwritten by its author, Saadi Bissalel Alevi, in over a period of decades in the mid to late 19th century. And he handwrote the memoir on a really inexpensive, um, vulnerable notebook. And we knew that the notebook had somehow made its way from his native city, Salonika, which was then Ottoman, but today is Thessaloniki, Greece, had made its way from Salonika to Paris, to Rio de Janeiro, and ultimately to Jerusalem, where it was donated to an archive. And I set out, as I was finishing that project, to explore how the memoir itself, the physical document, had made this journey. And what had become of the family that presumably allowed it to travel this astonishing route. Um, and as I worked my way backward, I began to encounter descendants of this man, and he was known by contemporaries just by his first name, Saadi, including descendants in Rio de Janeiro who are today in possession of an astonishing trove of private papers um, that date back... Uh, to the early years of the 20th century. And it was the discovery of that wonderful collection that the family very kindly gave me access to that unlocked um, a 10-year search to keep answering that, that question, that seemingly easy question, what had happened to this family. And that, in turn, led me to family members and family papers all over the globe and ultimately to this story um, which I refer to as an intimate history of the 20th century. So it's interesting because I think you come to this, if I may, as an historian, and yeah. y you tell a very readable story. I mean, it's just it's wonderful the way, for me as a reader, I learn about this history through this family's journey. Um, and. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what some of the challenges were in terms of threading that story together. Yeah, well, thank you for the kind words. Um, well, this is not my first book, as right. you mentioned. I've written a number of books about Sephardic history, about modern Jewish history, um, books that involve complex and messy, let's say, historical um, bases of papers, archives, documents. 
photographs of things that historians use to reconstruct the past. And I felt that this project itself, the story itself, demanded a different kind of telling. Um, it demanded a more intimate history. It demanded that the personalities of the people involved really come to the fore. And for me, the real challenge of this book was seeking to find an intimate voice that didn't relinquish any of my scholarly expertise, but was really a work of storytelling. Um, it is, of course, nonfiction, but, and I do not stray from, from the historical record, let's say, but what I do do is try to understand the private lives, the personal histories, the struggles, uh, the intimate relationships between these people. And that, in turn, led me, as, as you mentioned, to, to make narrative choices. And one of the narrative choices, the most important narrative choice that I made, was to organize the book such that it leads us from chapter by chapter, from person to person, stories of individuals that unfurl over the course of the book. Uh, and we encounter them at moments. We leave them for a time. We encounter them later. Um, there are certain people who only command a single chapter for exceptional reasons, um, but it, it is that idea of slowly unfurling the histories of individuals, not in their voices, but very much focused on them as individuals, that ultimately it was that narrative decision, I think, more than anything that, that shaped this book. So I guess I have two questions. Um, was it surprising to find this memoir, not just because it was a f so fragile, but that he wrote this memoir? And then what, what was it like to work with the family in terms of kind of reconstructing this narrative? Because the papers were in one place, the trove was in another place, et cetera. And, that, and you yeah. must have become immersed in the family Right, exactly. Well, to answer your first point, it was extremely exciting for us to discover the memoir to begin with. Um, now, those of us who are deep in this field knew that this memoir had existed because the author, Saadi, his sons had published fragments of it in the French press, in the Ladino press. They were a family of writers and of editors. Um, in the early years of the 20th century. So we knew they were working off a document. Um, but we didn't know what had become of that document. And so much upheaval had affected this community. There was massive migration in many directions. There were wars. There was a fire in Salonika in 1917 that destroyed not only massive infrastructure and homes, but also libraries and manuscripts collections. Um, so it seemed a safe assumption that this memoir had not survived the, the test of time and not survived the upheavals of this community. Um, and it was my colleague, Erin Rodrigue, who discovered it, in fact, miscatalogued in an archive in Jerusalem, which sometimes happens. Um, and it was an, a thrilling discovery that it had survived. And I think, just as a side note, before I answer your, your second question, one of the things that's extraordinary about studying Sephardic history and diasporic history and family history is that in the face of such high odds, unexpectedly, an extraordinary amount of material has been preserved, a lot of it by families, in family hands. And 
partly because um, archives around the world, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, have not given sufficient heed to Sephardic and Middle Eastern Jewish histories. Therefore, a lot of those things only exist in family hands, which is quite amazing. Um, you asked, um, I think your second question was about uh, what it felt like to meet with these families all around the world. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 yeah. and I mean, you you kind of made the thread happen for them as well, yes? In a way, I did. I mean, I think the book became that thread. It was, um, I'm so grateful to the members of this family, and not only the family members, but there are also people who were crucial conversation partners for me who were close friends of those involved or um, uh, friends of the children of those involved who were able to share memories and in some cases documentation. But really it was the families that held the bulk of the material that fed this book, that nourished this book, in addition to the um, many institutional archives I turned to. And I think what was so rewarding for me was not only the discovery which is, of course, rewarding for a historian, but also the, the relationships that I built with those family members. And those relationships helped me see the sources differently because documents are only paper and words if we don't understand their emotional import to uh, the families, the people that, that cherished them. And those living family members were, gave me the tools um, to unlock some of the mysteries of these papers. Now, there were mysteries they were not aware of. We can talk about that mm -hmm. later. Um, but that human dimension was incredibly important, and I'm, I'm so grateful for those connections and for the insights they brought to bear. So let's talk about some of those mysteries. And, and, and also, I think this would be somewhat parallel to that conversation is that you're telling also a larger story of Sephardic history. Yes. And that's a lesser known story, yes? That's right. Um, so let, if you can weave those two thoughts together. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so Sephardic history is um, has certainly been given less pride of place uh, by historians, by scholars of Jewish studies, than Ashkenazi histories, whether uh, you're referring to Europe or the United States or Latin America or you know points in between. Um, I'm fortunate to count myself among a cohort of wonderful scholars, um, and we are collectively working to reverse this this trend. But even in popular writing, it struck me that we do not have any or we did not have, if I can say somewhat immodestly before the publication of this book, we did not have any Sephardic family epic that tells the story of a century. Um, and we do find this, one can think of actually many versions of this for European Jewish families and their descendants. And um, what this meant, you asked about what the 20th century meant, what Sephardic history meant for the people involved. Um, this community from Salonika and the Judeo-Spanish-speaking world experienced some of the same events that European Jews experienced. They, they, w they too went through the upheavals of wars. They were catastrophically affected by the Holocaust. 
they too went through mass migration, found new homes, slowly integrated themselves into their new communities, um, suffered the pains and the rewards of becoming part of cultural diasporas, and so much more. Those are some of the things that European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews, and Sephardic Jews shared. But there are also things that they experienced that European Jews did not experience. And also, they experienced those shared phenomenon differently. They had their own experience of the Holocaust. They had their own experience of the end of empire um, that differed from those that Ashkenazi Jews experienced. They had their own experience of living alongside non-Jewish neighbors, whether they were Christian or Muslim or members of other religious communities. so many shared experiences, but, but different ones. And the languages they spoke, of course, were different. The culinary traditions were different. The practice of religion was different. Um, the places that they emigrated to were slightly different, although, of course, there was overlap in places like New York, Los Angeles, where I'm located, Seattle, uh, and beyond. So this history, this dramatic arc of modern history, that Sephardic Jews um, traveled through and were a part of. On the one hand, it's a Jewish story, and, and I try to present it in this book as a Jewish story. On the other hand, it really is a specific cultural thread of the larger Jewish experience and worth meditating on just on its own because it reminds us of the stunning diversity of modern Jewish cultural experiences and the different ways that shared events, again, like uh, the tragedies of the Holocaust, different ways of those uh, were experienced by the families involved. As you unraveled the story, what were some of the challenges and what were some of the surprises along the way? Interesting. Well, um, one challenge is when you're dealing with family correspondences, Inevitably, as with any family, there are some voices that loom larger. There are passionate letter writers in this history who wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters, saved every letter they wrote, saved every letter they received, preferred if there was an issue that they were struggling with to write about it in letter after letter after letter, refining their point. And then there were people who barely wrote it all. And there's a gendered component to this, at least as the history of this family is concerned. Um, One of the characters I really delighted in fleshing out in this book was a woman whose fingerprint is so light on on the family papers. She was possibly an illiterate woman, although that would have been a bit unexpected for her class. This was the... um, uh, this woman was the wife of one of the sons of Saadi, the memoirist I began with. And she has three children, two sons emigrate, a daughter stays at home. And I have access to her almost through a very small number of sources, one of which is a single letter that she wrote to the son that emigrated to Rio, and it was a letter transcribed by her daughter, and that's why I suspect that that she herself couldn't write. 
it took a lot of ingenuity on my part to recover her from a from a huge body of correspondence that she was mostly absent from and i had to reread the letters with her in mind so for example though she didn't write she sent her son delicacies to remind him of home whether it was sweets or preserved fruit so i had to think about those traveling food products as a historical current that needed to be followed because it told us something about its source, this woman. Uh, her name was Vida Alevi. And so that is an example of the challenge that sometimes one is actually struggling with documents, not only trying to squeeze a story out of them, but to really uh, read against their grain to try to find the stories that the papers themselves sometimes obscure. I think we're currently working on memoir um for the upcoming issue of Pock and Trigger, our magazine. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a great window into an exploration and then contextual, contextualizing history, et cetera. Um, so it's a really, it's a wonderful read. So, again, thank you. Um, and before I let you go, I'm curious to ask, uh, because you were part of, um, if I may say, the earlier days of yeah. our, our work here at the center. Um, what was it like back then, and, and could you have imagined going off and doing all that you've done since then? Oh, that's well, I had a wonderful summer. In the days that I was interning, the um, books were stored in a, a former mill site, uh, you know, meaning of the um, – the industrial site of a former mill that then had been reincarnated as a stationary factory in South Hadley, Massachusetts, where the books were temporarily being stored before they were moved to the book center. It wasn't the first place that um, those books were stored, but it was where they were being stored when I was there. Um, It was hot and sweaty, and it was wonderful. We spent our days um, organizing books, moving them around, but also reading, learning, um, discovering the depths of Yiddish culture. Uh, I began to study Yiddish there, and there really is a through line, I would say, with my current um, professional station, because my interest in Yiddish sparked at the book center, led me to enter continuing studying Yiddish, to continue studying Jewish history, led me to enter uh, a doctoral program in Jewish history at Stanford University, and my work with Yiddish never ended, even though I have come to focus heavily on the Sephardic milieu, and I um, some of my work uh, leans quite heavily on Yiddish sources um, because I work as a comparativist and I write global history. Uh, one of my books, Plumes, about Jews' mm-hmm. involvement in the global ostrich feather trade, very much integrated Sephardic and Ashkenazi um, history to talk about a boom and bust arc of the 20th century. So, um, astonishingly, whether I'm writing about Jewish Salonika or whether I'm writing about the Algerian Sahara and its Jewish communities, I have found a way to integrate Yiddish sources and to highlight what I think is so often forgotten, which is that the communities that we sometimes think of as separate Ashkenazi communities, Sephardi communities, there were moments that they inter- interacted, intersected, overlapped, were members of the same city, neighborhood, uh, certainly emigrate centers, and were members of the same families. 
so these histories ought not be separated with um, a solid line in our mind because uh, Jewish culture and Jewish history has always been a story of intersection, not only of different Jewish communities, of course, but of Jewish and non-Jewish ones. Yeah, I think it's a great point and something that's really important in terms of your work and the other work that's going on is that we're beginning to sort of see that holistic picture. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, quickly, what's next, if you, if you don't mind sharing? Um, well, it's a li- it's, I'm, I'm still in the digging phase, um, so <laughs> who knows what will be yielded and also where my, where my heart will land. Um, but right for the moment, I'm following a wonderful story of a uh, man from Rhodes, from a Sephardic family in Rhodes who traveled uh, to Africa, uh, southern Africa, colonial southern Africa as a merchant before landing in New York and opening a botanica shop selling spiritual wares to Caribbean, Latin American, and African American patrons in Spanish Harlem. Whoa. <laughs> Who knows <laughs> where it will take me. You, you certainly find great stories. Um, Plume <laughs> is you. another one. I mean, that, that figures prominently in our uh, public tours. Um, the whole idea that it's so surprising that this was um, an aspect of Yiddish culture um, and history. So um, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll find your way back to the center on the East Coast sometime and maybe do a book reading or what have you. Thank you so much. That would be wonderful. Pleasure to talk to you. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well be healthy, and tune in again soon.